Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today we continue our series on whistleblowing with one of the two Theranos whistleblowers, Erica Chung. Welcome, Erica. Will you tell us about your background, please? Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. Um, So my background, as uh, many of you know, I was the Theranos whistleblower, as Matt mentioned. And at the very start of my career, I had joined Theranos as a recent grad. So I'd gone to UC Berkeley I was looking for different positions in research in um, basically biomedicine and stumbled upon Theranos at a career fair where it literally had a line out the door for people vying to get a job there. Um, And I came into the company as an entry-level lab associate. And when I worked for the company, I went from being a lab associate to then integrating into a clinical setting And that at least like the bulk of what we're going to talk today, where I learned sort of my crash course in compliance, uh, that was where my my career kind of started Mm -hmm. um, in the very beginning. Many of us say that we we fell into compliance um, and you, I think, fell into it in a completely different way than any of the rest of us. (laughs) Yeah, I like tripped into compliance. I think that's a better way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But... uh, but yeah, it's it's. I think uh, what's interesting is so many people owe, so many people have so many different theories about why Theranos failed and mm-hmm. and how it got exposed and everything. But what I try and reason with people is a big reason is for very simple, you know, compliance principles. So in the medical diagnostic world of like, are your quality control systems and your systems of checks and balances to make sure that your technology is working and complying with the regulatory standards to make sure that you're ensuring patient safety. It -hmm. was really paying attention to those minor little details and compiling Mm -hmm. evidence in that way that was really able to expose this case of this sort of formidable company that seemed to have it all and was Mm -hmm. on this great trajectory and was going to do all these great things that no one would believed that they could possibly do anything wrong. So, mm. um, so it's interesting to me to see how uh, really paying attention uh, very early on in my career and something as simple as, as mm. quality assurance and, and mm-hmm. uh, reporting, you know, different errors that were mm-hmm. happening that um, really made the difference in being able to support my case to, to expose to people that they were endangering patients' lives when mm-hmm. it was not really commonplace for anyone to believe at that time when I was, you know, 22 or 23 years old, that I was the right one in this, mm-hmm. in, in this case, that this big company with $700 million in raised capital uh, was kind of engaging in this behavior. Yeah, I imagine it's even harder. You I mean, you were really just a baby at the time, right? So it's yeah. like you had a big track record behind you of, all these different accolades and experience, you came in sort of expecting to learn about things and then you reveal something. Yeah, exactly. I came in fresh out of college, right? Mm -hmm. You are there to serve. You are trying to figure (laughs) everything out. You are just so grateful that you got a job Mm -hmm. (laughs) pretty much. Totally. This is is the kind of perspective that I was coming from. And and with that comes a lot of... um, you know, I, I think going through the journey of working at Theranos and seeing the different red flags of things that mm-hmm. were going on and the bad behavior of, I think through that process, I had a lot of self-doubt because mm-hmm. I wasn't very experienced and mm-hmm. I did have a lot to learn. And mm-hmm. even in retrospect now, you know, a decade down the line, when I look back, I, I was I was really, you know, quite young and I didn't mm-hmm. have a lot of experience. And um, it was hard to know if it was the case that I just didn't understand what I was doing or I lacked some sort of awareness or, you know, after running a bunch of experiments, reporting a lot of different issues that I had seen 
and aggregating a lot of information that it was actually um, the fact that uh, in the case of Theranos, the product wasn't working, that the company was mm. still trying to launch this product into the public without their consent. Uh, and um, yeah, it's it was it was, I think, a bit more difficult for me to have a sense of assuredness in my competency in this case to analyze whether the issues that I were was seeing were um, were the reality of the situation to the extent mm -hmm. that I think someone who had maybe more experience in compliance would have been able to probably pick up on uh, much sooner and much quicker. Well, I would say on behalf of the whole compliance community that you did an awesome job and uh, this experience has put you in good stead for what you're doing now. So why don't you catch us up and tell us a little bit about the work that you've started with your own company? Yeah, so right now, so what I notice is that, you know, uh, when it comes to startups, startups are these fresh start companies. They don't have a lot of infrastructure. They don't mm -hmm. have a lot of systems. A lot of people are just trying to pull whatever little resources that they have together to try and, you know, solve problems. And sometimes with good intentions, sometimes to make money. Um, but at the same time, um, often what gets overlooked are things like ethics or compliance, mm -hmm. or how is this going to fit into the regulatory landscape as I grow and develop and, and be able to actually build my product further. Mm -hmm. um, so I noticed that there was still not just coming out of one of the biggest, you know, scandals, Theranos is, wasn't so much a startup in the, the traditional sense of what we think of, because it did actually have quite a bit of money. It had, it's probably one of the most well-resourced mm -hmm. startups uh, at, in its time, you know, back mm -hmm. in 2012, 2013. But for a majority of these other companies, it's still very hard for them to get onboarded with this information because um, they're just starting out. And there's so many pressures mm. to fundraise, mm -hmm. to build your product, to hire. And um, yeah, that was the sort of impetus of why I launched a nonprofit called Ethics and Entrepreneurship, where we're really trying to break down what are the must-haves for startup companies to embed ethical culture and ethical systems into their organizations, ideally early on, because then it makes it easier for them as they sort of scale and build out um, to make sure that they make decisions based on strong values and strong principles and that they don't end up having small mistakes boil out to really catastrophic results. Mm, great. Thank you. And that's a, an interesting way you've, you've taken your uh, trip into compliance and decided to land there and, and stay there, which is super cool for us. Yeah. So we hope you're enjoying the ride. Yeah. And I'll ask you to help us with some level setting. I think the Theranos case is pretty well known in compliance circles. It's it's kind of famous as a case. Um, but I'll ask you if you wouldn't mind to give a Cliff Notes version of the lead up to and discovery of the issues from your perspective. Right. So essentially, by the time I had gotten into Theranos, it had been around for about 10 years and initially, they were in what's called stealth mode. So the company wasn't really public with any information. I think there was maybe like three different media articles about the company. There wasn't a lot of visibility on what was going on. And they hadn't quite launched the product. Launching the product meaning taking their device and actively running it on patient samples. So when I had gotten hired for the company... They had just started launching and testing patient samples for, I think, about two to three months. Um, and then I came in and essentially, initially, they had very few tests that they could actually run on patients. They had maybe one or two with their uh, device. It was called the Edison that they had produced. Um, but what my job was coming in there was to validate more tests. So basically, can we run vitamin D? Can we run thyroid panels? Can we run infectious disease panels? And are they working on our system? And then to take those, that, uh, those blood tests that I had basically said, okay, these are validated. They're good to go. We've submitted them with regulators and then take that technology and integrate it into a clinical setting where we were actively going to process patient samples. So um, initially, the red flags that I had started to see were really uh, 
probably about a month in working for the company, not even that long, when I was kind of trying to validate this technology and say, is it accurate? So we know when I use a machine that's in a hospital that's approved by the FDA, uh, it will give me a result like 20 micrograms per mil. But when I run it on Mm -hmm. the Theranos device, it's coming out like 120. Mm -hmm. So I know that this is a big problem because this would mean I would give two different diagnoses to a patient and this could really change the course of their care, right? This could, in some Mm -hmm. cases, kill them. Um, Mm -hmm. So this was kind of the first alarm bell that I had seen is that I was Mm. sitting in these meetings watching people cherry pick data because there was a lot of pressure to Mm. basically validate these tests to get them live to start processing on patient samples as soon as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just kept noticing that they were engaging in these these practices of just cherry picking which anyone with a, mm. a you know basic science degree knows that like you should not cherry pick, especially um, because even though it might seem like you can generate a good report to send over to regulators that you have these great accuracy rates, when you actually run it uh, in the laboratory, it's going to mess up. Those errors are going to pop up at some point. Um, and then that's what we I started to see downstream was now... They took me off of validating these different biochemical tests within the laboratory and then starting Mm -hmm. to run it on patients. I was in charge of implementing a quality control infrastructure to basically say, before I run a patient, I run a quality control check to see when I run, you know, quality control that I know has a, you know, 20 microgram per mil value into the system. Does it pop out relatively the same result? And it kept saying. Mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. the same result. It's again, 120 micrograms per mil, like we had seen in these preliminary studies before they had cleaned the data or cherry picked. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, basically the whole battle was me basically seeing that every time I'd run quality controls for all these different biochemical tests, it would tell me, no, do not run patient sample. No, do not run patient sample. Mm-hmm. And it was constantly being fed all these different excuses for why that didn't need to be paid attention to, or we were doing, you know, needed to, it was a device problem. It was a technician problem. Mm-hmm. It was a, you know, too hot that day problem, like whatever, whatever <laughs> they could manage mm-hmm. to muster up. And um, mm-hmm. I think just seeing this same error occur over and over and over and over again, and kind of trying to articulate to so many different teams within the organization that, hey, I'm seeing these issues. Um, I had thought that maybe it was like a lack of awareness that there wasn't um, good communication between executive level management and the people operational on the floor, which can happen Mm -hmm. sometimes. So I really took it upon myself and had recruited a small team internally to really aggregate a lot of this evidence to show people, look, this is how bad it is for us in the clinical lab of, of basically every time I go to run a patient sample, it's telling me, no, do not run this. No, do not run this on a, basically every other day. It was telling me that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I took it up to um, so many different teams internally. There wasn't any, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a startup. So there was really no compliance team at that point Mm -hmm. in time. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really strong reporting infrastructure that I could say, Mm -hmm. Hey, here's a a internal whistleblower line, but I took it up to, you know, pretty much every director (laughs) in the company to try and problem solve to see what was the issue. I took it Mm -hmm. to the COO of the company and I took it to the board to try and let them know that, hey, um, you know, you guys think this machine is working, but it's really not. And I just don't think it's appropriate. I th- it's, it's actually awful to be testing patients right now with this device that we know has immense amount of errors. We need to pull it and just stop mm-hmm. processing patient samples. Um, and after kind of going through the whole rung of leadership to try and express my issues, they basically said, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. You need to just process patient samples without question. And mm-hmm. I left the company and mm-hmm. decided not to work there anymore because it just, um, 
it didn't feel right. And I couldn't be asked to do something that I fundamentally didn't believe was the right thing to do. Right. Mm -hmm. I, it was just so wrong to me what was happening. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's how I ended up exiting the company. And, uh, it, yeah, we did, I did, when I worked in the company, managed to shut down some of the tests. So that was good. Mm -hmm. But shortly after I had left, it, they got reinstated and they started mm -hmm. processing um, patients again with these same kind of faulty assays. In the mm -hmm. science world, you have to pay attention. There's a difference between signal and noise, right? Mm -hmm. And just because the machine spits out a result you really have to make sure that that's a true signal of what mm -hmm. someone's, you know, health levels are versus just the noise of you've constructed this device that can give you some sort of value. And mm -hmm. um, we had a lot of noise on these mm -hmm. machines. So, yeah. After you left, I believe you wrote a letter to a regulator. What, um, what uh, instigated that for you? What motivated you to do that? Yeah. So at this time, so I had left the company for about six, seven months, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I had been talking to people in the company still after I worked there. I was, I think, 22 or 23 at this time. Mm -hmm. So I had known that they had reinstated some of these tests and were still processing patient samples. Um, but essentially, I got contacted by a Wall Street Journal reporter saying, Erica, I know you're really freaked out <laughs> because everyone I talked to is really freaked out. But uh, what I've heard is that what Theranos is promising to their patients and the device that they've claimed to have for their investors is not actually what's happening. Mm -hmm. And they're potentially endangering the lives of patients. And it was mm -hmm. like a sigh of relief. I was mm -hmm. like, okay. I'm not alone in this. I'm not mm -hmm. the only person that has and has looked at this information and realizes that this is wrong, what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so from there, after that call, Theranos, having known that there was a journalist that was going to do this investigative piece, had come after a whole bunch of, of former employees, myself included. And I mm -hmm. decided not to speak to them because I was like, I don't work for these people. I don't have to say anything to them. Mm -hmm. And then they decided to sick one of the best corporate lawyers on me, uh, David mm -hmm. Boys, at the time. Um, and that forced me to call a lawyer because they essentially had... Um, followed me figured out where I was I was living with a colleague at the time because I was moving and transitioning out of mm -hmm. houses they had had people sit outside my work freaked mm -hmm. out my own colleagues like mm -hmm. my new employers who were there and from kind of intimidation that they were sort of placing upon me, I called a lawyer and the lawyer kind of tipped me off. Like, you know, you can report to regulators that this is an option. Mm -hmm. And so after that conversation with the lawyer and um, talking to a number of other people, I decided to send a letter to the Center of Medicaid and Medical Services, which is the regulatory body in charge mm -hmm. of approving a company of whether they can process patient samples or not. Um, it's not the FDA. Everyone thinks it's the FDA. FDA is in charge of the distribution of medical devices, which mm -hmm. technically Theranos was not distributing medical devices yet, except mm -hmm. for the nanotainer. So it was the only regulatory body that could, again, what was my agenda, stop them from mm -hmm. engaging the bad behavior of testing on patients too soon without their consent mm -hmm. and without their knowledge. And mm -hmm. Luckily, that sparked an investigation, and from there, um, it, it stopped them from being able to process patient samples anymore. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how this came to be in the first place, and I wanted to refer to how there's been a lot of discussion about how Elizabeth Holmes, um, who, of course, was the, the founder of Theranos, she was the brainchild, um, was very charming and persuasive um, and that that is likely to have helped her cover up the issues. And one of the things that I noticed was in terms of 
um, some of the victims or the investors that were misled, several of them were very seasoned, very um, uh, experienced um, businessmen. Um, And so I'd like to ask you, what are your thoughts on this? And do you think gender played a part in the ability to deceive in this particular instance? Yeah, I think, I mean, when you look at most of these fraud cases or most of criminal cases, even people are really charming and persuasive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth was, right? Mm -hmm. She had a great story. She was uh, like this underdog case Mm -hmm. where she had basically every, everyone wanted to believe in her and wanted Mm -hmm. to believe in her story. And she did have this incredible way to sort of share this very strong vision that people wanted to and myself included, wanted mm-hmm. to do, right? That we could, we were at a space with technology that we could make healthcare more accessible, that it could be more affordable, that it could be leveraged in a way to help us, you know, see our loved ones not get so sick that it would be at the point of no return. Mm-hmm. And even for me, when I, I listen to her speak, even in retrospect of knowing all the things going on, I still fall for it, right? Mm. I still fall for for her ability to really communicate these ideas uh, really effectively. Um, so, so I think it's not something unique necessary to Elizabeth. You see this with a lot of different people who are who are um, kind of uh, fraudsters and, and engage in criminal behavior, right? They have this mm-hmm. sort of um, ability. In terms of of the gender role playing into it, I think, you know, majority of the cases of fraud that have occurred have been male at this Mm -hmm. point in time, right? There wasn't anything, I think, because of gender that led to this outcome. Mm -hmm. It was um, the case that you had this person who made bad decisions, decided when information was brought to them that they needed to stop Mm-hmm. basically processing patient samples. If she wanted to continue just building a medical device, I'm sure she could have, but mm-hmm. that's not what she chose to do. She chose mm-hmm. to use this medical devices on patients before it was ready. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she uh, wasn't any different than any other person. I think the the tragedy of the the story and where gender does play a role is that during that time, Elizabeth was the only you know, female founder to be involved in a unicorn company. And I think it wasn't just the case that everyone wanted to believe that that could be possible, that Mm -hmm. she was going to make it, right? That Mm -hmm. she had broke through the barrier of going into a really hard field of a biotechnology product that tends to have extremely high failure rates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even going into the business world, you know, Mm -hmm. an over 90% failure rate and that she could finally be the one person, you know, women make up 50% of the population, but they make Mm -hmm. 0% (laughs) of the leadership in Silicon Valley that she Mm -hmm. could do it and that she Mm -hmm. could influence you know, other people, both investors to believe in other women that go to found companies mm-hmm. and then also just for, for young women like myself at that mm-hmm. time, that they could have the possibility to be able to engage in doing those things. And so I think, um, you know, in terms of the sort of gender aspect of it and the tragedy of it is the fact that the fall from grace was just that much farther because I think she was really this this powerful symbol of so many different things. And I think the most exciting thing about gender is that people try and say, oh, you know, it was because of a woman that she got away with this. And that's not the case at all, Mm -hmm. right? It's just, there are some people that end up doing things, making bad decisions, don't take responsibility for their bad decisions, and Mm -hmm. then it goes too far. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you actually look at the (laughs) <laughs> number of unethical behavior and fraud cases that is actually majority majority men so that's not the case and mm. um yeah so there's that aspect of it in terms of the really smart people who had come in and bought to the co- 
bought into the company and her, they were very good businessmen. They were really high profile Mm. people, but I think there's something very special about biotech that you do have to have a level of domain expertise and competency in the field in order to ask the right questions to see if the technology is working, if you have Mm -hmm. the right, you know, compliance structures put into place, if you understand how to interface with regulators very well. It's Mm. just very um, specific type of knowledge that you have to have in order to evaluate these companies and the leaders who are part of these companies that I think um, is what caused it to be difficult for these um, very intelligent people to, to not be able to pick up on what was going on. And then there's sort of like an effect of the more and more powerful people that you bring in, the less responsibility you think you have to sort of check up and see and do your own due diligence mm-hmm. because um, there's this kind of sentiment that, well, you can't fool that many smart people, right? Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think there was some some level of that going on too where she had managed to to get so many of these people that gave her validation that wasn't necessarily warranted or representative of the reality of the state of the company. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that startups are particularly dangerous environments for frauds to take place? And how can compliance officers starting to work at a, a startup be most effective in terms of embedding an ethical culture into that organization? Yeah, I think there are some elements of startups that they would be more conducive to things mm-hmm. going wrong, right? And mistakes mm-hmm. being made. You don't have a lot of resources. You have an immense amount of pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, your con- majority of them are constantly in survival mode. Mm-hmm. I think there are some simple things that startups can do better that will make it easier for them. One of them is is hiring experienced people. I think there was this real ethos, maybe not everywhere, but especially in the Silicon Valley of a certain type of ageism, right? Well, right. in order to work for these fast-paced, innovative mm-hmm. companies, you had to be young and like mm-hmm. agile. Mm-hmm. But really, you do need some experience and you need mm-hmm. people who have um, the competency to basically help you govern over your blind spots. Um, I think we have to be careful of moral licensing mm-hmm. and the idea that because I'm this new innovative product and it's there's nothing else like it on the market, that this this means that that justifies me getting away with all of these sort of egregious activities because, mm. you know, just wait worlds, you know, it will be all worth it in the end. This is just the cost of, of what it takes in order to, to build things that have never been built before. And I think sometimes startups can go into that territory and mm-hmm. you have to be careful. There also seems to be a high level of this cult of personality Mm. of wanting these visionary people, of wanting the next Steve Jobs. And I think that got pushed into the culture a little too much of of emphasizing having these very charismatic people who can basically sell anything, even if it's nothing, Mm -hmm. right, in the case of, of Theranos. So I think those things, you know, if they pay attention to them, they can do better and, and really uh, execute more strongly on on their their visions if they make sure that those things are going on and also making sure that you have transparent organizations where people see problems that they can report them right Mm -hmm. and understand that when they report them it might come to direct threat to whatever you're doing or Mm -hmm. your own personal beliefs or whatever else and I think that'll produce a bit stronger outcomes even though the environment is quite stressful Mm-hmm. and intense. And in terms of compliance officers coming in there, I think it's, you know, being cognizant of this idea that they are in survival mode, right? Mm-hmm. They are not going to have all the perfect procedures and processes set up. So really focusing on what are our must-haves? What are those thresholds of like non-negotiable lines we can't cross? Mm-hmm. And let's start from there. Mm -hmm. and move forward. And I think that's a good approach for the startup because it's again, playing to this, look, I'm trying to help you survive, get you to the next level. So Mm -hmm. keep growing, keep building this thing. I have confidence that this 
you know, I wouldn't work, majority of people don't work for something that they don't have confidence in, at least I'd hope not. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so I think that would help kind of build a stronger rapport and relationship with a lot of these startup founders. Um, And, and also just like telling these things, right. It's um, analyzing the risks, right. I think Mm -hmm. you, you have to have a level of optimism because if you don't, it's very hard to make it through the day when it's mm. so challenging, mm-hmm. but also keeping them grounded on the sort of realistic na- nature of like, we're looking at these risks so it doesn't ruin the business. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's our role. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think those, those can be helpful of just kind of being straightforward with people. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not personal. It's, it's just paying attention to the context in which you're embedded in. Mm-hmm. So. Lots of good common sense stuff there. Yeah. I'll take you back um, to the, the Theranos case and to ask you, because it is really hard, and I think compliance officers probably know this more than anyone else, speaking up does come with an incredible amount of risk. And no matter how much a company says, oh, you know, we don't retaliate, it's perfectly fine to speak up, we encourage you to do so, uh, it is still a fearful experience, I believe, for, for most people. And so I'd like to hear from you, what was the thought process in your mind when you realized that something was wrong and you were considering the decision to speak up? Um, this is a good question. I think, I mean, I, I it's it has to do with responsibility, I think, a lot of it for me. When I, just as much as I was happy to have gotten this job and to be a part of this organization, I was spending, you know, 16 hours a day working for this company, utilizing a lot of my valuable time and energy. And so when I really sign up for a position, I really sign the agreement that I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do it well, and I'm going to take ownership and responsibility over the things that uh, I am told to do. And so when speaking up again, it was this case where I don't know if I was, I, I was scared because I really fundamentally believed that the reason I was trying to communicate with people, the issues that I was seeing is because I thought it was for the greater good of the company and their own mission. And for me, I just am one of these people that, you know, I, will hold myself and I try as best as I can to hold others accountable to the things that they tell me are their standards. Right. And, and I think that it wasn't, it wasn't so scary to speak up as much as I would have thought it was. I think it was scary to be retaliated against and not, (laughs) that was terrifying. Um, But, uh, and, and, and also very perplexing to me, because mm-hmm. I genuinely was coming from this place of this is the job that you you gave to me and I'm going to be responsible for the position and the role that you had. So I think um, that helps when you're speaking up, right? When you have mm-hmm. a lot of evidence, when you say I'm doing this because I really think this is in the best interest of the job that I've been told to do. And it's not personal. I'm not trying to be negative. I really fundamentally believe in wanting mm-hmm. to this company better. Um, I try and recognize my own conflicts of interest of like, am I just doing this because I'm trying to advance myself? Or is it like genuine that this is this is what I think is, I, I'm just a, in a way, I know if I advance the company, I advance myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sort of oriented that way. So I think these types of very simple principles have always made it very easy for me to speak up. Mm-hmm. Because I just think of it in the way that like, I'm, I'm not just going to join any company to just join any company. I'm going to join one because I, I fundamentally have that connection to whatever it is that I'm doing. And it makes it easier to speak up even when it's hard and to have those hard conversations. Cause I, at the end of the day, I, I care, right. Mm-hmm. I care. And um, yeah, the retaliation portion though, now in retrospect, I can see it still hasn't stopped me. Uh, from from speaking up, even though it still has presented itself as hard in mm. not just my work life but my my personal life, mm. uh, uh, the the retaliation was very difficult, and I think this is why I've been 
trying to figure out like different ways that you can help support people who do mm-hmm. speak up, right? And mm-hmm. are operating with the best interests of the company at hand. And how do we implement better policies within our organizations to not retaliate towards those mm-hmm. who speak up? How do you do it in a ways where people can maintain their anonymity mm-hmm. so they're not scared of, you know, the rejection, the social rejection from people. They're not scared mm-hmm. of losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they feel like something's actually going to be done about mm-hmm. the complaint that they file. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So now that's kind of emboldened me there that, uh, yeah, with majority of whistleblowers, whistleblowers, I've realized are not like a big um, portion of the population. The I think real tragedy about them is the fact that a lot of them, when they tried to figure out the kind of psychological motivations mm-hmm. of, of why people decide to blow the whistle is because they have something called identity fusion. You can think of it like how sports fans, like when their team loses, they feel the loss. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> oddly, whistleblowers are, are that same way. When they mm-hmm. sign up to do something, they kind of mm-hmm. use their identity to whatever it is that they're doing. And so they really feel that even if it comes to a personal cost at them, it's okay because it's for the greater good of the organization. And I think this is the real tragedy for most whistleblowers. It's, it's the fact that they really cared about the thing that they mm-hmm. were involved in and that mm-hmm. was taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, a, a different type of, it's like being broken up with in a way, you know, it's like being heartbroken mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, you really did have that strong connection to the thing that you were doing. And mm-hmm. I think this is a side of whistleblowers that a lot of people don't um, see. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of people that just want to take companies down, but I, that's very rare. <laughs> it's very yeah. rare. Yeah, um, that doesn't happen as often. Like those, yeah, th- that th- that doesn't seem to be the the norm of of who decides to come forward. So, mm. yeah, there's a phrase that I used um, called compliance destiny, and it's the idea that um, you don't choose compliance as a discipline; compliance chooses you. And the answer that you gave very initially when you were talking about this, in my mind, tells me you no matter how robust your um, education and science is, which I know it is, um, you have the heart of a compliance professional. And so I believe um, no matter what happened, you were always going to end up in an ethics role. So welcome to your compliance destiny. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like I fundamentally love innovation. I love Mm -hmm. the fact that business is this great way to build sustainable ways that you can launch new products and services in the world, but you have to do that with some sentiment of the public interest too. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I would have never thought of it that way that it's like, I've been chosen, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I've like been chosen by compliance to go into Mm -hmm. this way. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely seemed to work out that way in a very unexpected um, trajectory and and Mm -hmm. path. Mm Mm-hmm. You mentioned the retaliation sucked. Um, what was the most difficult aspect of being a whistleblower? Was it the retaliation or something else? Um, I think it was, I mean, it's it's so hard to be, there's like limitations of how self-aware I can be on this because even the mm-hmm. notion of calling myself a whistleblower isn't something I deemed myself. It's more mm. everyone started calling me that and so that, <laughs> Uh, has been its own experience. Mm-hmm. I think I think the hardest thing, it, it was a bit of the retaliation. But mm-hmm. again, even that, it, it, it was so many things. Um, one, I think the saddest case is I had joined this company because I wanted to help serve patients. Mm-hmm. And I was asked to do something that could have hurt people. Mm-hmm. And even though I stood up and did the right thing, there was some level of me that is very hurt that I was complicit in this process that Mm -hmm. I fundamentally objected to. Mm -hmm. And I think if I could have a, you know, genie and go back in time, like if this all didn't happen and I wasn't a whistleblower and they just stopped processing patient samples until they were ready to have a technology, I would take that in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably the, hardest part is 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 living with this sort of bizarre fame of you did the right thing but it was still because this bad 
thing happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's put me in a space. I think the other hard thing is, is the retaliation was hard because when people are following you mm-hmm. without your consent, you don't know when it stops or starts. And mm-hmm. I think that's led to a lot of an immense amount of anxiety uh, for me because at the end of the day, Theranos was a very uh, high-powered company. A lot of investors lost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, people lost a lot of face. And um, any sentiment of like Machiavellianism that could potentially come out of this has probably mm-hmm. been uh, psychologically something very um, challenging for me to deal with that I wasn't anticipating And Mm -hmm. I think initially that's why I stayed off the record for a very long, I tried to stay off the Mm -hmm. record. Uh, It didn't end up happening because the, I was involved in a court case and the judge had decided to release my name into the public record Um, because it, it, it's, it's very daunting, right? When you, Mm -hmm. you feel like you have this sort of looming kind of dark experience over your shoulder, even though Mm -hmm. again, I, I did, I'm super grateful for the fact that I came out of this, healthy and well. I didn't have legal fees. I didn't have any negative consequences Mm -hmm. in any sort of way, but there's still this sort of shadow side to the experience that um, Mm -hmm. kind of can make it difficult at at times. Mm. I think that's completely understandable and incredibly self-aware, in fact, of you to say, I do not, I I possibly at this point in time do not know the full extent of what the repercussions are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Right. Mm-hmm. I, at the same time of being vigilant, you also have to move forward with your life. And just mm-hmm. as I trusted myself to get through what was a, tr- mm-hmm. you know, very challenging experience, I have to have mm-hmm. that same faith and confidence in my ability to make it through adversity, mm-hmm. even if it presents itself in the future. So that's how I've tried to orient, orient my, my mindset uh, around the incident. Beautiful reframing. Yeah. How has speaking up in a high profile case changed your life aside from the stalking, which clearly wasn't ideal? <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> definitely not something I wish upon anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I've got to meet really incredible people. I think that's something that I wasn't mm. anticipating that would be a very beautiful uh, consequence of all of this is that mm-hmm. it's really allowed me to share my story with other people who are probably going through similar incidents where they want to speak up and they say something, but they might be scared to do so to give them that, that's that ability to know that you can do the right thing and it end up well, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can, Mm -hmm. the truth can prevail. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might not happen at the time span that you want it to, but Mm -hmm. it it, it does happen. And um, I think to inspire other people to stand up for what they, you know, the right thing for themselves Mm -hmm. and others has been an incredible experience um, and something that I'm really, really grateful for. My day-to-day hasn't really changed too much, you know. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah, good to my, hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, but it's, it's always nice um, that you know that you could have uh, helped other people mm-hmm. feel confident in themselves when they're also in a very challenging situation. I think that's, um, I'm, I'm happy that I've, I've been able to have that opportunity and that being on the record has, has been able mm-hmm. to grant me that, which I wasn't probably as um, aware of when I first started on this kind of journey of how public, when the case started being really public. Mm. Was there anything that you would have done differently if faced with the same situation again? Yes, I would have reported much sooner. (laughs) (laughs) I would have gotten more people to jump on board with me and to do it. I would have talked to regulators way sooner. Absolutely. I would have done it uh, way, way sooner. Um, yeah, you kind of get caught, dealt the cards that you get dealt, but uh, I would have definitely done this sooner. I wouldn't mm. have waited um, those number of months in order to report. Mm, that's interesting. We kind of need you saying that as like a compliance officer's toolkit to persuade <laughs> our colleagues. Come on, speak up. We love it. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious to know, 
in in the compliance world, the Theranos case is high profile, and then in mainstream media as well, it, it drew a lot of interest. So, do you get recognised in the street for you, the role that you played in this? Uh, only in very specific context, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm in, if I'm in San Francisco or the Silicon Valley, that might happen. Um, but I, you know what's funny? I think it's it's one of those things that people will say you look familiar way more often, but they can't pinpoint mm-hmm. why, mm-hmm. and that's something that I've noticed. Mm-hmm. Or I think a lot of people are really scared to come up to me, but they'll keep staring at me. And from the corner of my eye, I'm like, what am I doing? Why is this? Mm -hmm. So I can't tell. It hasn't though dramatically changed changed too much. I I, I would say Um, Mm -hmm. I'm also um, very introverted. So I spend most of my day and it has been a pandemic. So I've been pretty much inside (laughs) my house this entire time. So it's not, there's, and I'm wearing a mask when I'm outside. So true, true. Uh, anyone would really know um, <laughs> who I was in any case. Uh, <laughs> so, so we'll see. We'll see if it um, if it happens more when I uh, when we we get out more into the world. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Um, and to, to wrap up with you, Erica, I'd like to ask um, to help us who are in compliance officer type roles. What do you think we can do as part of our Speak Up campaigns, apart from me snipping that um, part with you encouraging people to do it sooner? What can we do to better foster a Speak Up culture and encourage colleagues to come forward? And, And just putting it out there, I think a lot of big companies in particular do have the hotline in place. They do have posters advertising it and mentioning it in trainings and a non-retaliation policy. So I guess that would be the bare minimum of what you would suggest. Is there anything else that you can think of? Yeah, I think I think when someone, I think what's really important right now, because I think emotions are very high among so many different people because there are so many things outside of people's control mm. of, uh, you know, the pandemic going on, mm-hmm. uh, just political climates everywhere seem to be quite crazy. There seems Mm -hmm. to just be this issue of a lot of people not trusting one another is really this idea of being emotionally perceptive and creating psychological safety, I think Mm -hmm. is going to be very, very important Mm -hmm. for people that are speaking up more than ever. Mm -hmm. Um, And just making sure that when someone comes to you with a complaint, you know, do the process of just trying to really active listen and just hear them out. And then ideally, like you said, majority of compliance officers have some sort of infrastructure for that. But I think we could all operate with a little more empathy, I think now Mm -hmm. more than ever, Mm -hmm. because of just how tense things are for Mm -hmm. people. Um, so I think that's one one way is is just making sure you actively listen and try and be empathetic and just provide this this I, culture and identity of this is a psychologically safe space. Mm. This is what we're trying to cultivate here. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that your voices are heard, and we want to make sure that we're respectful of the diversity of mm-hmm. opinions and perspectives that people are going to bring to the table. Mm. And I think that would be very beneficial, especially right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had one other point, but I, I, I kind of lost it. Um, <laughs> well, you spoke very <laughs> eloquently on that one, so yeah. I'm willing to take it. Um, and if it jumps out at you, it, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll chime in. But um, yeah. yeah, I think I think that's going to be really really crucial right now. Mm-hmm. And and also celebrate celebrate mm-hmm. when people speak up. Mm-hmm. I don't think we do this enough where, mm-hmm. you know, when people have the courage to have that hard conversation with you, even if it stings, even mm-hmm. if it hurts, mm-hmm. just being and saying, because this person decided to do something that was uncomfortable and say uncomfortable mm-hmm. things, these mm-hmm. are the outcomes of what that relied. And this is how it made us better. Mm-hmm. This is what we're going to learn from the situation. Um, I think, you know, just like bad ideas can be contagious, how can we make <laughs> social behavior contagious, right? Mm-hmm. And think about that and, and really celebrate it and really kind of get 
people to sort of spread um, this type of behavior of being one comfortable with saying something and then mm-hmm. two, comfortable with listening to something that may be difficult to hear. Mm. One of my favorite ways to encourage colleagues to speak up, because I think people feel like, you know, being the bearer of bad news is terrible. We have to divert our attention to it is explaining, you know, when, when we have a problem, sweeping it under the carpet doesn't magically make it go away. It's still going to be there as a problem for us to deal with at some point. And it only makes other people, you know, people who are concerned about it more likely to take it externally, either to the media or to a regulator. And when they do that, we have far less control over it. Yeah. Right. So we want to have an opportunity to to not air our dirty laundry and fix our own problems. And so I love that idea of um, framing that as celebrating, as seeing it as a positive and um, making it something that not only the the potential whistleblowers or reporters um, would would see as a positive, but also the people who surround them. And it's not just the managers who can dish out retaliation. You referred to essentially being ostracized um, as a a negative consequence as well. So we want everyone to know that speaking up is something to be celebrated. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It takes a, you know takes the whole organization to have that kind of sentiment and, and, and buy it. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, we have come to the end and I would love to thank you so much for thank spending the so time with for us. having me. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I know that our audience is going to be really interested in your story. So wonderful to have you here. Yeah. Thank you. Just to wrap up for today's um, session, to increase the star power as if it wasn't enough with Erica, um, I wanted to share something from an individual who, for my uh, childhood at least, was very influential in terms of the idea that um, young women could um, be independent, entrepreneurs, and just an absolute feminist um, right from the start. And if you're of the same vintage of me as me, uh, you may also have read the Babysitter's Club books when you were growing up. And the author uh, is a lady named Anne Martin. And so I reached out to Anne um, to ask her a little bit about what mo- motivated her to include these concepts in her books. So I'm going to share that with you now. And I asked Anne, or I put to her, many of your stories and characters focused on young women being capable and independent, as well as progressive about social justice issues. And that was a little ahead of your time, given that the first books were published in the mid 80s. Why was it important to you to empower your female characters and have them conscious of social justice issues? And Anne responded, I was fortunate to attend Smith, a progressive all women's college whose curriculum explored issues of social justice and challenge students to make a difference in the world. When writing the Babysitter's Club books, I felt passionate about creating characters who were independent and inquisitive. The club members tackled problems and searched for solutions together with their parents largely in the background, but available if needed. My hope was that these characters would resonate with readers who were exploring their identities and learning how to navigate their place in their school, their community, and even the world. So with that, we end for today. And thank you so much for listening. Um, You can find us on Corporate Compliance Insights as well as any podcast player and YouTube. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care until next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.